Chapter Twenty Five of the Oregon Trail. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Oregon Trail by Francis Parkman, Jr. Chapter Twenty Five The Buffalo Camp. No one in the camp was more active than Jim Gurney, and no one half so lazy as Ellis. Between these two there was a great antipathy. Ellis never stirred in the morning until he was compelled to, but Jim was always on his feet before daybreak, and this morning, as usual, the sound of his voice awakened the party. "'Get up, you booby! Up with you now! You're fit for nothing but eating and sleeping. Stop your grumbling and come out of that buffalo robe or I'll pull it off for you.' Jim's words were interspersed with numerous expletives which gave them great additional effect. Ellis drawled out something in a nasal tone from among the folds of his buffalo robe, then slowly disengaged himself, rose into sitting posture, stretched his long arms, yawned hideously, and finally, raising his tall person erect, stood staring round him to all the four quarters of the horizon. Delorier's fire was soon blazing, and the horses and mules, loosened from their pickets, were feeding in the neighboring meadow. When we sat down to breakfast, the prairie was still in the dusky light of morning, and as the sun rose, we were mounted and on our way again. "'A white buffalo!' exclaimed Monroe. "'I'll have that fellow,' said Shaw, "'if I run my horse to death after him.' He threw the cover of his gun to Delorier and galloped out upon the prairie. "'Stop, Mr. Shaw, stop!' called out Henry Chatillon. "'You'll run down your horse for nothing. It's only a white ox.' But Shaw was already out of hearing. The ox, who had no doubt strayed away from some of the government wagon trains, was standing beneath some low hills which bounded the plain in the distance. Not far from him a band of veritable buffalo bulls were grazing, and startled at Shaw's approach, they all broke into a run and went scrambling up the hillsides to gain the high prairie above. One of them in his haste and terror involved himself in a fatal catastrophe. Along the foot of the hills was a narrow strip of deep marshy soil into which the bull plunged and hopelessly entangled himself. We all rode up to the spot. The huge carcass was half sunk in the mud which flowed to his very chin, and his shaggy mane was outspread upon the surface. As we came near, the bull began to struggle with convulsive strength. He writhed to and fro, and in the energy of his fright and desperation would lift himself for a moment half out of the slough, while the reluctant mire returned a sucking sound as he strained to drag his limbs from its tenacious depths. We stimulated his exertions by getting behind him and twisting his tail. Nothing would do. There was clearly no hope for him. After every effort his heaving sides were more deeply embedded, and the mire almost overflowed his nostrils. He lay still at length, and looking round at us with a furious eye, seemed to resign himself to his fate. Ellis slowly dismounted, and, deliberately leveling his boasted Jaeger, shot the old bull through the heart. Then he lazily climbed back again to his seat, pluming himself, no doubt, on having actually killed a buffalo. That day the invincible Jaeger drew blood for the first and last time during the whole journey. The morning was a bright and gay one, and the air so clear that on the farthest horizon the outline of the pale blue prairie was sharply drawn against the sky. Shaw felt in the mood for hunting. He rode in advance of the party, and before long we saw a file of bulls galloping at full speed upon a vast green swell of the prairie at some distance in front.
Shaw came scouring along behind them, arrayed in his red shirt, which looked very well in the distance. He gained fast on the fugitives, and as the foremost bull was disappearing behind the summit of the swell, we saw him in the act of assailing the hindmost. A smoke sprang from the muzzle of his gun, and floated away before the wind like a little white cloud. The bull turned upon him, and just then the rising ground concealed them both from view. We were moving forward until about noon, when we stopped by the side of the Arkansas. At that moment Shaw appeared, riding slowly down the side of a distant hill. His horse was tired and jaded, and when he threw his saddle upon the ground, I observed that the tails of two bulls were dangling behind it. No sooner were the horses turned loose to feed than Henry, asking Monroe to go with him, took his rifle and walked quietly away. Shaw, Tete Rouge, and I sat down by the side of the cart to discuss the dinner which Delorier placed before us. We had scarcely finished when we saw Monroe walking toward us along the river bank. Henry, he said, had killed four fat cows, and had sent him back for horses to bring in the meat. Shaw took a horse for himself and another for Henry, and he and Monroe left the camp together. After a short absence, all three of them came back, their horses loaded with the choicest parts of the meat. We kept two of the cows for ourselves, and gave the others to Monroe and his companions. Delorier seated himself on the grass before the pile of meat, and worked industriously for some time to cut it into thin broad sheets for drying. This is no easy matter, but Delorier had all the skill of an Indian squaw. Long before night, cords of rawhide were stretched around the camp, and the meat was hung upon them to dry in the sunshine and pure air of the prairie. Our California companions were less successful at the work, but they accomplished it after their own fashion, and their side of the camp was soon garnished in the same manner as our own. We meant to remain at this place long enough to prepare provisions for our journey to the frontier, which, as we supposed, might occupy about a month. Had the distance been twice as great and the party ten times as large, the unerring rifle of Henry Chatillon would have supplied meat enough for the whole within two days. We were obliged to remain, however, until it should be dry enough for transportation. So we erected our tent and made the other arrangements for a permanent camp. The California men, who had no such shelter, contented themselves with arranging their packs on the grass around their fire. In the meantime, we had nothing to do but amuse ourselves. Our tent was within a rod of the river. If the broad sand beds with a scanty stream of water coursing here and there along their surface deserved to be dignified with the name of river, the vast flat plains on either side were almost on a level with the sand beds, and they were bounded in the distance by low monotonous hills parallel to the course of the Arkansas. All was one expanse of grass. There was no wood in view, except some trees and stunted bushes upon two islands which rose from amid the wet sands of the river. Yet far from being dull and tame, this boundless scene was often a wild and animated one, for twice a day, at sunrise and at noon, the buffalo came issuing from the hills, slowly advancing in their grave processions to drink at the river. All our amusements were, too, at their expense. Except an elephant, I have seen no animal that can surpass a buffalo bull in size and strength, and the world may be searched in vain to find anything of a more ugly and ferocious aspect. At first sight of him, every feeling of sympathy vanishes. 
no man who has not experienced it can understand with what keen relish one inflicts his death-wound, with what profound contentment of mind he beholds him fall. The cows are much smaller and of a gentler appearance, as becomes their sex. While in this camp we forbore to attack them, leaving to Henry Chatillon, who could better judge their fatness and good quality, the task of killing such as we wanted for use, but against the bulls we waged an unrelenting war. Thousands of them might be slaughtered without causing any detriment to the species, for their numbers greatly exceed those of the cows. It is the hides of the latter alone which are used for purposes of commerce and for making the lodges of the Indians, and the destruction among them is therefore altogether disproportioned. Our horses were tired, and we now usually hunted on foot. The wide, flat sand-beds of the Arkansas, as the reader will remember, lay close by the side of our camp. While we were lying on the grass after dinner, smoking, conversing, or laughing at Tete Rouge, one of us would look up and observe, far out on the plains beyond the river, certain black objects slowly approaching. He would inhale a parting whiff from the pipe, then, rising lazily, take his rifle, which leaned against the cart, throw over his shoulder the strap of his pouch and powder horn, and with his moccasins in his hand, walk quietly across the sand toward the opposite side of the river. This was very easy, for though the sands were about a quarter of a mile wide, the water was nowhere more than two feet deep. The farther bank was about four or five feet high and quite perpendicular, being cut away by the water in spring. Tall grass grew along its edge. Putting it aside with his hand and cautiously looking through it, the hunter can discern the huge shaggy back of the buffalo slowly swaying to and fro as with his clumsy swinging gait he advances toward the water. The buffalo have regular paths by which they come down to drink. Seeing at a glance along which of these his intended victim is moving, the hunter crouches under the bank within fifteen or twenty yards, it may be, of the point where the path enters the river. Here he sits down quietly on the sand. Listening intently, he hears the heavy, monotonous tread of the approaching bull. The moment after, he sees a motion among the long weeds and grass just at the spot where the path is channeled through the bank. An enormous black head is thrust out, the horns just visible amid the mass of tangled mane. Half sliding, half plunging, down comes the buffalo upon the river bed below. He steps out in full sight upon the sands. Just before him a runnel of water is gliding, and he bends his head to drink. You may hear the water as it gurgles down his capacious throat. He raises his head, and the drops trickle from his wet beard. He stands with an air of stupid abstraction, unconscious of the lurking danger. Noiselessly, the hunter cocks his rifle. As he sits upon the sand, his knee is raised and his elbow rests upon it, that he may level his heavy weapon with a steadier aim. The stock is at his shoulder. His eye ranges along the barrel. Still he is in no haste to fire. The bull, with slow deliberation, begins his march over the sands to the other side. He advances his foreleg and exposes to view a small spot denuded of hair just behind the point of his shoulder. Upon this the hunter brings the sight of his rifle to bear. Lightly and delicately his finger presses upon the hair trigger. Quick as thought the spiteful crack of the rifle responds to his slight touch, and instantly in the middle of the bare spot appears a small red dot.
The buffalo shivers. Death has overtaken him. He cannot tell from whence. Still, he does not fall, but walks heavily forward, as if nothing had happened. Yet before he has advanced far out upon the sand, you see him stop. He totters. His knees bend under him, and his head sinks forward to the ground. Then his whole vast bulk sways to one side. He rolls over on the sand and dies with a scarcely perceptible struggle. Waylaying the buffalo in this manner and shooting them as they come to water is the easiest and laziest method of hunting them. They may also be approached by crawling up ravines or behind hills or even over the open prairie. This is often surprisingly easy, but at other times it requires the utmost skill of the most experienced hunter. Henry Chatillon was a man of extraordinary strength and hardihood, but I have seen him return to camp quite exhausted with his efforts, his limbs scratched and wounded, and his buckskin dress stuck full of thorns of the prickly pear among which he had been crawling. Sometimes he would lay flat upon his face and drag himself along in this position for many rods together. On the second day of our stay at this place, Henry went out for an afternoon hunt. Shaw and I remained in camp until, observing some bulls approaching the water upon the other side of the river, we crossed over to attack them. They were so near, however, that before we could get under cover of the bank our appearance as we walked over the sands alarmed them. Turning round before coming within gunshot, they began to move off to the right in a direction parallel to the river. I climbed up the bank and ran after them. They were walking swiftly, and before I could come within gunshot distance, they slowly wheeled about and faced toward me. Before they had turned far enough to see me, I had fallen flat on my face. For a moment they stood and stared at the strange object upon the grass. Then, turning away, again they walked on as before, and I, rising immediately, ran once more in pursuit. Again they wheeled about, and again I fell prostrate. Repeating this three or four times, I came at length within a hundred yards of the fugitives, and as I saw them turning again, I sat down and leveled my rifle. The one in the center was the largest I had ever seen. I shot him behind the shoulder. His two companions ran off. He attempted to follow, but soon came to a stand, and at length lay down as quietly as an ox chewing the cud. Cautiously approaching him, I saw by his dull and jelly-like eye that he was dead. When I began the chase, the prairie was almost tenantless, but a great multitude of buffalo had suddenly thronged upon it, and looking up I saw within fifty rods a heavy dark column stretching to the right and left as far as I could see. I walked toward them. My approach did not alarm them in the least. The column itself consisted entirely of cows and calves, but a great many old bulls were ranging about the prairie on its flank, and as I drew near, they faced toward me with such a shaggy and ferocious look that I thought it best to proceed no farther. Indeed, I was already within close rifle-shot of the column, and I sat down on the ground to watch their movements. Sometimes the whole would stand still, their heads all facing one way. Then they would trot forward as if by a common impulse, their hoofs and horns clattering together as they moved. I soon began to hear at a distance on the left the sharp reports of a rifle, again and again repeated. And not long after, dull and heavy sounds succeeded, which I recognized as the familiar voice of Shaw's double-barreled gun. When Henry's rifle was at work, there was always meat to be brought in. 
I went back across the river for a horse, and returning, reached the spot where the hunters were standing. The buffalo were visible on the distant prairie. The living had retreated from the ground, but ten or twelve carcasses were scattered in various directions. Henry, knife in hand, was stooping over a dead cow, cutting away the best and fattest of the meat. When Shaw left me, he had walked down for some distance under the river bank to find another bull. At length he saw the plains covered with a host of buffalo, and soon after heard the crack of Henry's rifle. Ascending the bank, he crawled through the grass, which for a rod or two from the river was very high and rank. He had not crawled far before, to his astonishment, he saw Henry standing erect upon the prairie, almost surrounded by the buffalo. Henry was in his appropriate element. Nelson, on the deck of the victory, hardly felt a prouder sense of mastery than he. Quite unconscious that anyone was looking at him, he stood at the full height of his tall, strong figure, one hand resting upon his side and the other arm leaning carelessly on the muzzle of his rifle. His eyes were ranging over the singular assemblage around him. Now and then he would select such a cow as suited him, level his rifle and shoot her dead. Then, quietly reloading, he would resume his former position. The buffalo seemed no more to regard his presence than if he were one of themselves. The bulls were bellowing and butting at each other, or else rolling about in the dust. A group of buffalo would gather about the carcass of a dead cow, snuffing at her wounds, and sometimes they would come behind those that had not yet fallen and endeavor to push them from the spot. Now and then some old bull would face toward Henry with an air of stupid amazement, but none seemed inclined to attack or fly from him. For some time Shaw lay among the grass, looking in surprise at this extraordinary sight. At length he crawled cautiously forward and spoke in a low voice to Henry, who told him to rise and come on. Still the buffalo showed no sign of fear. They remained gathered about their dead companions. Henry had already killed as many cows as we wanted for use, and Shaw, kneeling behind one of the carcasses, shot five bulls before the rest thought it necessary to disperse. The frequent stupidity and infatuation of the buffalo seems the more remarkable from the contrast it offers to their wildness and wariness at other times. Henry knew all their peculiarities. He had studied them as a scholar studies his books, and he derived quite as much pleasure from the occupation. The buffalo were a kind of companions to him, and, as he said, he never felt alone when they were about him. He took great pride in his skill in hunting. Henry was one of the most modest of men, yet in the simplicity and frankness of his character it was quite clear that he looked upon his preeminence in this respect as a thing too palpable and well established ever to be disputed. But whatever may have been his estimate of his own skill, it was rather below than above that which others placed upon it. The only time that I ever saw a shade of scorn darken his face was when two volunteer soldiers, who had just killed a buffalo for the first time, undertook to instruct him as to the best method of approaching. To borrow an illustration from an opposite side of life, an Eton boy might as well have sought to enlighten Porson on the formation of a Greek verb, or a Fleet Street shopkeeper to instruct Chesterfield concerning a point of etiquette. Henry always seemed to think that he had a sort of prescriptive right to the buffalo, and to look upon them as something belonging peculiarly to himself. 
nothing excited his indignation so much as any wanton destruction committed among the cows, and in his view shooting a calf was a cardinal sin. Henry Chatillon and Tete Rouge were the same age, that is, about thirty. Henry was twice as large and fully six times as strong as Tete Rouge. Henry's face was roughened by winds and storms. Tete Rouge's was bloated by sherry cobblers and brandy toddy. Henry talked of Indians and buffalo, Tete Rouge of theatres and oyster cellars. Henry had led a life of hardship and privation. Tete Rouge never had a whim which he would not gratify at the first moment he was able. Henry, moreover, was the most disinterested man I ever saw, while Tete Rouge, though equally good-natured in his way, cared for nobody but himself. Yet we would not have lost him on any account. He admirably served the purpose of a jester in a feudal castle. Our camp would have been lifeless without him. For the past week he had fattened in a most amazing manner, and indeed this was not at all surprising, since his appetite was most inordinate. He was eating from morning till night. Half the time he would be at work cooking some private repast for himself, and he paid a visit to the coffee-pot eight or ten times a day. His rueful and disconsolate face became jovial and rubicund, his eyes stood out like a lobster's, and his spirits, which before were sunk to the depths of despondency, were now elated in proportion. All day he was singing, whistling, laughing, and telling stories. Being mortally afraid of Jim Gurney, he kept close in the neighborhood of our tent. As he had seen an abundance of low, dissipated life, and had a considerable fund of humor, his anecdotes were extremely amusing, especially since he never hesitated to place himself in a ludicrous point of view, provided he could raise a laugh by doing so. Tete Rouge, however, was sometimes rather troublesome. He had an inveterate habit of pilfering provisions at all times of the day. He set ridicule at utter defiance, and being without a particle of self-respect, he would never have given over his tricks, even if they had drawn upon him the scorn of the whole party. Now and then, indeed, something worse than laughter fell to his share. On these occasions he would exhibit much contrition, but half an hour after we would generally observe him stealing round to the box at the back of the cart, and slyly making off with the provisions which Delorier had laid by for supper. He was very fond of smoking, but having no tobacco of his own, we used to provide him with as much as he wanted, a small piece at a time. At first we gave him half a pound together, but this experiment proved an entire failure, for he invariably lost not only the tobacco, but the knife entrusted to him for cutting it, and a few minutes after he would come to us with many apologies and beg for more. We had been two days at this camp, and some of the meat was nearly fit for transportation, when a storm came suddenly upon us. About sunset the whole sky grew as black as ink, and the long grass at the river's edge bent and rose mournfully with the first gusts of the approaching hurricane. Monroe and his two companions brought their guns and placed them under cover of our tent. Having no shelter for themselves, they built a fire of driftwood that might have defied a cataract, and wrapped in their buffalo robes, sat on the ground around it to bide the fury of the storm. Delorier ensconced himself under the cover of the cart. Shaw and I, together with Henry and Tete Rouge, crowded into the little tent, but first of all the dried meat was piled together and well protected by buffalo robes pinned firmly to the ground. About nine o'clock the storm broke, amid absolute darkness. 
It blew a gale, and torrents of rain roared over the boundless expanse of open prairie. Our tent was filled with mist and spray beating through the canvas and saturating everything within. We could only distinguish each other at short intervals by the dazzling flash of lightning, which displayed the whole waste around us with its momentary glare. We had our fears for the tent, but for an hour or two it stood fast, until at length the cap gave way before a furious blast, the pole tore through the top, and in an instant we were half suffocated by the cold and dripping folds of the canvas which fell down upon us. Seizing upon our guns, we placed them erect in order to lift the saturated cloth above our heads. In this disagreeable situation, involved among wet blankets and buffalo robes, we spent several hours of the night, during which the storm would not abate for a moment, but pelted down above our heads with merciless fury. Before long the ground beneath us became soaked with moisture, and the water gathered there in a pool two or three inches deep, so that for a considerable part of the night we were partially immersed in a cold bath. In spite of all this, Tete Rouge's flow of spirits did not desert him for an instant. He laughed, whistled, and sung in defiance of the storm, and that night he paid off the long arrears of ridicule which he owed us. While we lay in silence, enduring the infliction with what philosophy we could muster, Tete Rouge, who was intoxicated with animal spirits, was cracking jokes at our expense by the hour together. At about three o'clock in the morning, Preferring the tyranny of the open night to such a wretched shelter, we crawled out from beneath the fallen canvas. The wind had abated, but the rain fell steadily. The fire of the California men still blazed amid the darkness, and we joined them as they sat around it. We made ready some hot coffee by way of refreshment, but when some of the party sought to replenish their cups, it was found that Tete Rouge, having disposed of his own share, had privately abstracted the coffee pot and drank up the rest of the contents out of the spout. In the morning, to our great joy, an unclouded sun rose upon the prairie. We presented rather a laughable appearance, for the cold and clammy buckskin saturated with water clung fast to our limbs. The light wind and warm sunshine soon dried them again, and then we were all encased in armor of intolerable rigidity. Roaming all day over the prairie and shooting two or three bulls were scarcely enough to restore the stiffened leather to its usual pliancy. Besides Henry Chatillon, Shaw and I were the only hunters in the party. Monroe this morning made an attempt to run a buffalo, but his horse could not come up to the game. Shaw went out with him, and being better mounted, soon found himself in the midst of the herd. Seeing nothing but cows and calves around him, he checked his horse. An old bull came galloping on the open prairie at some distance behind, and turning, Shaw rode across his path, leveling his gun as he passed, and shooting him through the shoulder into the heart. The heavy bullets of Shaw's double-barreled gun made wild work wherever they struck. A great flock of buzzards were usually soaring about a few trees that stood on the island just below our camp. Throughout the whole of yesterday we had noticed an eagle among them. Today he was still there, and Tete Rouge, declaring that he would kill the bird of America, borrowed Deloria's gun and set out on his unpatriotic mission. As might have been expected, the eagle suffered no great harm at his hands. He soon returned, saying that he could not find him, but had shot a buzzard instead. Being required to produce the bird in proof of his assertion, he said he believed he was not quite dead, but he must be hurt from the swiftness with which he flew off. 
"'If you want,' said Tete Rouge, "'I'll go out and get one of his feathers. "'I knocked off plenty of them when I shot him.' "'Just opposite our camp was another island covered with bushes, "'and behind it was a deep pool of water, "'while two or three considerable streams coursed over the sand not far off. "'I was bathing at this place in the afternoon "'when a white wolf, larger than the largest Newfoundland dog, ran out from behind the point of the island and galloped leisurely over the sand not half a stone's throw distant. I could plainly see his red eyes and the bristles about his snout. He was an ugly scoundrel with a bushy tail, large head, and a most repulsive countenance. Having neither rifle to shoot nor stone to pelt him with, I was looking eagerly after some missile for his benefit when the report of a gun came from the camp and the ball threw up the sand just beyond him. At this he gave a slight jump and stretched away so swiftly that he soon dwindled into a mere speck on the distant sand-beds. The number of carcasses that by this time were lying about the prairie all around us summoned the wolves from every quarter. The spot where Shaw and Henry had hunted together soon became their favorite resort, for here about a dozen dead buffalo were fermenting under the hot sun. I used often to go over the river and watch them at their meal. By lying under the bank it was easy to get a full view of them. Three different kinds were present. There were the white wolves and the gray wolves, both extremely large, and beside these the small prairie wolves, not much bigger than spaniels. They would howl and fight in a crowd around a single carcass, yet they were so watchful and their senses so acute that I never was able to crawl within a fair shooting distance. Whenever I attempted it, they would all scatter at once and glide silently away through the tall grass. The air above this spot was always full of buzzards or black vultures. Whenever the wolves left a carcass, they would descend upon it and cover it so densely that a rifle bullet shot at random among the gormandizing crowd would generally strike down two or three of them. These birds would now be sailing by scores just about our camp, their broad black wings seeming half transparent as they expanded them against the bright sky. The wolves and the buzzards thickened about us with every hour, and two or three eagles also came into the feast. I killed a bull within rifle shot of the camp. That night the wolves made a fearful howling close at hand, and in the morning the carcass was completely hollowed out by these voracious feeders. After we had remained four days at this camp, we prepared to leave it. We had for our own part about five hundred pounds of dried meat, and the California men had prepared some three hundred more. This consisted of the fattest and choicest parts of eight or nine cows, a very small quantity only being taken from each, and the rest abandoned to the wolves. The pack animals were laden, the horses were saddled, and the mules harnessed to the cart. Even Tete Rouge was ready at last, and slowly moving from the ground, we resumed our journey eastward. When we had advanced about a mile, Shaw missed a valuable hunting knife and turned back in search of it, thinking that he had left it at the camp. He approached the place cautiously, fearful that Indians might be lurking about, for a deserted camp is dangerous to return to. He saw no enemy, but the scene was a wild and dreary one. The prairie was overshadowed by dull leaden clouds, for the day was dark and gloomy. The ashes of the fires were still smoking by the riverside. The grass around them was trampled down by men and horses, and strewn with all the litter of a camp. Our departure had been a gathering signal to the birds and beasts of prey. 
Shaw assured me that literally dozens of wolves were prowling about the smoldering fires, while multitudes were roaming over the prairie around. They all fled as he approached, some running over the sand-beds and some over the grassy plains. The vultures in great clouds were soaring overhead, and the dead bull near the camp was completely blackened by the flock that had alighted upon it. They flapped their broad wings, and stretched upward their crested heads and long skinny necks, fearing to remain, yet reluctant to leave their disgusting feast. As he searched about the fires, he saw the wolves seated on the distant hills, waiting for his departure. Having looked in vain for his knife, he mounted again, and left the wolves and the vultures to banquet freely upon the carrion of the camp. End of chapter 25